Good morning, Calvary Satterton, and good morning, Calvary Quakertown. It's uh, our privilege to have you join us today, so thanks for carving some time out of a busy life to be here. As you can tell, we're starting a new series today that we're calling uh, Speak Up. And next week, we're going to talk about speaking up for things. And the following week, we'll talk about speaking up against some things. But this morning, we're going to talk about what's underneath the speaking up. So this morning is not really about your mouth, even though some of you need a message on your mouth, all right? But that's not this morning's message. We'll talk about those next week. This morning, this message is about what's underneath your mouth. What is it that's motivating your mouth? What sits underneath your words, driving and giving energy to the things that you say? Our mission motivates our mouths. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Everybody has a mission. You're living for something. Now, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but there's kind of a debate in psychology circles. There are kind of push psychology schools and there are pull psychology schools. And here's what I mean by that. The push schools say we are pushed into life by our history and our past. And so based on, you know, kind of how you're genetically wired, based on your upbringing, you're pushed into life. And a lot of those things are preset, predetermined, and not a whole lot of change can happen. There are then some pull schools that say, no, 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 it's not really your history that's determinative. It's your goal that's determinative. What are those things that are pulling you? You know, as you read the Bible, it says both. Isn't that right? I mean, the Bible says we're made in God's image. Therefore, human beings can do incredibly good things. The Bible also says that we're cracked, we're fallen and finite. Therefore, human beings can do incredibly terrible, hurtful things. That's our history. But our, but our mission, that future, the thing that pulls us, is more powerful than the things that push us. That's why the Bible talks so much about the future. That's why we started with waiting on the world to change. When the world is as you want it to be, what will it be like? What's your mission? What's your goal? What are you living for? What's pulling you? That's more powerful than what's pushing you. So it's our mission that motivates our mouths. So if we're going to learn how to speak up, we better understand something about mission. Now in the New Testament... Paul gives us a great way to think about mission. In Philippians 1.21, he says it like this. For me to live is... Now, I'm not going to give you his answer. I'm just going to ask you to think about that for a minute. For me to live is... What is it for you? I mean, be honest, even though you're in church, right? Um, just think about that. What is it that you're living for? Whatever you would put on that blank line is your mission. It's the thing that's pulling you, and it's the thing that's shaping what you're speaking up for and what you're speaking up against. It's shaping what you're living for. It's shaping what you're spending your energy and what you're spending your money on. All of those things are shaped by what your mission is. Now, if I were to mention a couple characters from history, you would immediately know the mission, right? So Abraham Lincoln, to preserve, preserve the union and eliminate slavery. Martin Luther King to eradicate racism from the land. Mother Teresa, to show mercy and compassion to the poor and dying. Their missions 
colored everything in their lives. Their missions provided a focus to get, people, to get all of their activities and energy in a line toward the destination. Well, let's talk about some contemporary figures. What's Donald Trump's mission? Tweet chaos, tweet chaos. Maybe it's something like that. Or how about Hillary's? Complain, blame, and never go away. I'm not sure if that's really the mission or not. How about the Eagles? What's their mission? To never run the football. I'm thinking that that's what it is. How about the Phillies' mission this year? To not lose 100 games. It's still in the balance, I think. How about Penn State? To give me a heart attack. That's their mission, it seems like. But what's your mission? If we're pushed into life by God's image and our sinfulness, and we're pulled by what we're loving and valuing, trusting and living for, how are you living out the dynamic on that continuum? Well, that's what we're going to look at today, and that's kind of what we're going to look at for the next few weeks. And we're going to do that by looking at some characters, three characters in particular, from the Old Testament book of Esther. So if you have your Bibles, turn back to Esther. It's right after Nehemiah and right before Job, if that helps. Uh, if it doesn't, look at the index or go on your iPhone, go to, go to Version. You can get there quickly. Esther, I'm not going to read the whole first chapter. I'm going to read a little bit of the first chapter. And we're going to look at one character from Esther. And we're going to try to answer this question. What's his mission and once we can answer that question, you're going to see everything the guy does, all of the attitudes that he has, all of his actions flow from what he's living for. And we'll be able to answer the question in a little bit. He would say, for me to live is... But the point is, how are we going to answer the question? We'll follow along and I'll read the first uh, few verses of Esther chapter 1 and see if you can discover what the, what's this guy's name and what, what's his mission. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Media. The princes and the nobles of all the provinces were present. For a full 180 days... He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When those days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the, king's in, the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded his eunuchs to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. We'll stop there. That's kind of an interesting passage, right? 
Well, first of all, the king's name is Xerxes. That's who we're going to look at today. And our question is, what's Xerxes' mission? So here's how the chapter begins. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled 127 provinces all the way from India to Kush, India to Africa. Basically, Xerxes was over all the known world. He ruled pretty much all that there was to rule. How many of you have seen 300? Raise your hands. All right, then you know Xerxes, and here's his picture. I'm not sure it really looked like that. And again, the basic gist of 300 is kind of right. There was lots of the, you know, theatrical license in the movie. Uh, but there, Sparta was fighting Xerxes. You remember that? And Xerxes was king of the world, and he thought of himself as a god. What was his mission? Well, rather than just kind of think about that, let's look at what we read in chapter 1. First of all, you know, Xerxes was kind of the king of partying. Do you notice that? In the short space of the verses that I read, three parties were mentioned. Well, let's take a look at the parties, because I think in the parties we can kind of get to his mission. First of all, there was a party, and party number one was for all the VIPs. Did you notice that? All the vice presidents, all the governors, all the mayors, all the people that were somebody. Now, you have to remember, if Xerxes, the king of the world, sent you an invitation to come to the party, you could not go. Like, you couldn't write back, yeah, I'm really busy. I don't think I can make it. No, no, no. You were going to make it or you wouldn't be around to be a VIP anymore. No need to fear. None of you would have been invited. All right? It's for the VIPs of the empire. The party lasted 180 days. For those of you that aren't too good at math, that's six months. So what's six months from now? It'll be the beginning of spring. Thank you, Jesus. In fact, I was thinking about this. When it, I would love to have a button that on the first Sunday of fall, I could press it and it would become the first Sunday of spring. Wouldn't you like that? Now, some of you like winter. Yeah, you're sick, all right? Um, <laughs> but if you're like me, yeah, six months from now is the end of March and it's spring. We'll be sobering up from the Eagles Super Bowl victory parade, right? <laughs> Spring training will be in full swing. The holidays will be a distant memory. You'll have already forgotten everything you've got, or most of it will be broken by then. This party went on for six months. And what did he do at the party? He paraded his wealth and all that he's accumulated to all of the VIPs that gathered. Now, why do you think he would do that? to impress them. Why do you think he would do that? To show them that they are serving a great king, maybe even a godlike king. So he brings out all of his wealth. And it's kind of interesting at this point in our history, you see different countries, right, these days, parading their military hardware before the watching world in other countries, right? So North Korea kind of parading theirs, and Russia's parading theirs, the United States is parading theirs. Well, that's kind of what Xerxes was doing. He's parading not just the military hardware, he's parading all of his wealth, he's bringing out all of the things to show people he's a great king, and you should be honored to be a VIP in submissive service to Xerxes. That's what's going on. That's party number one. Got it? Now, as soon as that party is over, 
he gives another party. This party lasts seven days. Why does it only last seven days? Because everybody gets invited. Everybody in the empire. If you're fancy, the hoi polloi get invited. If you're not, the riffraff get invited. Anybody can come. Think Animal House. Remember the movie? That's this party, right? We got seven days of happy hour in the kingdom. Xerxes, Xerxes presiding. Why does Xerxes give a seven-day party for everybody in the town, everybody in the, in the kingdom? Kind of the same thing, right? He wants to show everybody what he's accumulated. He wants to show everybody how powerful he is. And so he gathers everybody. He's already done the VIPs. They've all checked. Oh, yeah, we're honored to be VIPs in the service of Xerxes. And if I follow Xerxes, I'll climb the ladder and make it to the top. Now everybody's invited. Oh, we can't believe that we're ruled by such, by such an enormously powerful, gracious king who owns basically everything in the world. Um, it's kind of interesting to stop at that point and at least to realize Xerxes' mission, don't you think, is pretty far from God's mission, wouldn't you say? So I was thinking uh, this past week, what would it be like if Xerxes, or forget Xerxes, what would it be like if people in our world today adopted God's mission rather than a counterfeit mission. Because you do realize, if you don't adopt God's mission for your life, you will not live missionless. You will adopt a competing counterfeit mission. Human beings are made to have to live for something. We're kind of purpose, teleologically oriented creatures. You have to live for something. And so if you don't adopt God's mission as your mission, You'll adopt some other mission for your life, but don't, no, don't be mistaken. You will live for something. You'll trust something. You'll find your identity in something. You'll be loving and valuing something. So if you reject God's mission, you won't live missionless. You'll adopt another mission. But what if everybody in, what if everybody in our world adopted God's mission? What would our world be like? Well, it would be different, wouldn't it? What would our country be like? What would Pennsylvania be like? What would the township or city that you live in be like? What would Quakertown be like or Souderton be like? Perkesey, Franconia, Telford, Hatfield, Coopersburg. What would the towns be like if we adopted God's mission rather than a counterfeit competing mission? What would your place of work be like if the people who work there adopted God's mission rather than a counterfeit mission? What would your neighborhood be like? Your development. The neighbors who live around you. What would your family be like? If people in your family adopted God's mission rather than a competing counterfeit mission. What would your marriage be like? If the two of you adopted God's mission rather than a competing counterfeit mission, which is me first. What would your life be like if you adopted God's mission? rather than a competing counterfeit mission? That's the question, isn't it? Xerxes adopted the wrong mission. But it didn't just stay there. 
Xerxes' adoption of the counterfeit bogus mission emanates from him and begins to taint people around him. And that's our story, right? You know, we could ask the question the other way. What would our world be like if people adopted a counterfeit competing mission? (laughs) Just look around. There it is. What would our families look like? Just look around. What would our workplaces be like, our neighborhoods? What would our cities, churches, country, what would our church be like if we adopted a counterfeit? Well, just kind of look around. That is what we've done, right? And so I want to make sure before we proceed that you understand. We're not talking about Xerxes as a long time ago historical figure that doesn't impact our lives at all. Xerxes' story to one degree or another is our story. God's given us a mission. We don't want that mission We deny that one. We adopt a counterfeit competing mission. We live for that one. And the result is all hell breaks loose. That's why our world's in the shape it's in. That's why our towns and country and community groups and workplaces are in the shape they're in. Well, that's the second party. Animal house. Everybody living for their own mission. People are there trying to suck up on all of Xerxes' free stuff. Xerxes parading all of the things before the people to convince them who he is and that they should be honored to serve him. But then there's a third party, a third party. Now, the third party is for women only. Um, The Xerxes party was obviously for men only. We can't do that anymore in our world, but it's a women's only party. I'm just guessing that was not like Animal House. I'm just guessing. Um, They were surely talking about the men at the women's party, I'm guessing, Uh, but it wasn't wild and raucous and animal house. It was probably, you know, a little more subdued. They were a little more proper. It was not, you know, happy hour for a week. They were kind of enjoying themselves, but it was a very different um, kind of venue than Xerxes' party. Well, after Xerxes has had uh, way too much to drink, he comes up with a really stupid idea. I'm going to send to my queen, Vashti, I'm going to send to Vashti's party for her. And I'm going to have her come to the happy hour party. Now, why would he want Vashti to come to Animal House? Oh, I know. To show everybody her really high IQ. The Jeopardy board was going to drop. Alex Trebek's going to come out. And she's going to beat the smartest people in the kingdom at Jeopardy, right? No. Oh, I know. It's to show everybody in the kingdom what a great personality Vashti has. She's going to do, you know, discussion of Babylonian and Medo-Persian history. And everybody's going to be a... No, probably not. I know. She's going to show her stand-up skills. She's going to get up and make everybody laugh, right? She's like the best comedian. No. Why does he want Vashti to come? Because he wants to parade her as his trophy wife. He wants to parade her the way a 4-H'er parades the heifer at the show, right? And he wants Vashti to kind of come out because it tells us she is really nice to look at, right? Some things never change, right? So in our world, often a a woman's identity is often perceived more by what she looks like than the substance of her character and who she is. Some things never change. So Xerxes wants Vashti to come because she's lovely to look at. Now, if you put yourself into Xerxes' shoes, we're still trying to figure out his mission. And what's his mission? He wants to appear powerful. He wants to show everybody all of his possessions. 
And he wants to show everybody that he's got the best looking wife in the kingdom, right? And so he wants Vashti to come. So all the men are drooling. Oh, I wish I had a woman that looked like that. And here's the kicker. Vashti says, oh, well, thanks a lot, Xerxes, but no thanks. Uh Uh-oh. Well, that really brings us to a, a part, you know, a section of the book that we kind of understand, but you probably don't realize there's actually a literary term for that. We would say it's ironic. The technical term is the Bible is full of peripety. Peripety. Now, here's what peripety means. Peripety is a sudden change in direction. You're headed one way, and all of a sudden, everything changes. Let me give you a couple of examples from TV. You ever see the commercial? It comes on, and there are a group of people eating in a diner. And some guy outside puts a mask on, and he enters the diner. He's going to rob the diner. Have you seen this commercial? And as soon as he gets in, ready to rob the diner, he trips a little bit and stumbles. But little does he know, there's a cop convention in the area, and everybody in the diner is a police officer. And within a matter of minutes, he's got like 45 guns pointed at him. That's peripety, right? A sudden change of events. My favorite one is from Bronx Tale. Don't watch it, it's not that. Well, it's a good movie, but I always get in trouble when I mention movies like, Charles, you watch movies like that? Sorry. Sorry. But in Bronx Tale, here's how it goes. Uh, Here's the scene. Now you can't leave. You remember that? So the motorcycle gang shows up at uh, at the mafia leader's bar, and they've been destroying bars in the neighborhood. And uh, so they go over, and eventually they kind of wreck the bar, and the mafia leader goes over to the door. Uh, He invites them to leave. They won't leave. He locks the door, and he says, now you just can't leave. That's peripety. That's peripety. A sudden change in direction. Everything changes in an instant. Now you may say, Charles, why are you mentioning that? Because the Bible is full of peripety. You're headed in one direction like whiplash. You're going in another direction. The Gospels are full of peripety. They start... The Pharisees are the ones that are honored. Before you know it, the tax collectors being patted on the back and the Pharisees are being smacked down. The men are honored. But at the end of the story, the women are the ones being praised. The Bible's full of peripety, sudden change of events. Well, there's a lot of peripety or irony in, in Esther, and it would be helpful for us to think about it. Here's the first mark of a peripety or of irony. When the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Here's the irony. The most powerful man in the universe can't control his wife. Right? Don't you men laugh? You can't either, right? Um, But that's kind of the point, right? The most powerful guy in the kingdom can't get his wife to do what he wants her to do. Now, let's think back, and that'll help us. Let's think back on what his mission is. Xerxes' mission can be described with three P words. Power, possessions, and praise. Isn't that what he's about? He's all about power. And so he has a party for all the VIPs for six months to show them he's powerful and to parade his possessions before them so that they will all praise him. Power, possessions, and praise. That's what this guy's about. Notice the irony His mission is power. His wife says no. Interesting, right? 
Notice what the author's doing. The author is kind of making fun of Xerxes. Now, when Vashti refuses to come, does Xerxes come to his senses and say, oh, Vashti, you know, you're right. The more I think about it, I should never parade you in here as a trophy wife. Will you please forgive me? No, no, no. What's the end of the verse? He is burning with anger and furious because his mission is power. Vashti is thwarting his mission. So let me uh, let you in on a little secret. Think back over this past week, or you keep this in mind this coming week, and ask, what's behind your anger? Anger is always a second emotion, never a first emotion. Why is that? We get angry when what we value is threatened or taken away. That's why often the Bible says anger is ungodly and wrong. Not all anger. If you're angry over something good being taken, that would be righteous anger. There is such a thing. Jesus gets angry. God gets angry, the Bible says. But most of our anger is because we've adopted a competing counterfeit mission and then somebody kind of interferes, threatens our counterfeit mission and we get angry. Here's Xerxes. His mission is to show everybody how powerful he is. His wife says, no, he's angry because his mission is threatened. Funny how that works, isn't it? As you continue on, you discover part of the reason is not just the power deal. It's the praise thing. Word's going to spread through the kingdom that Xerxes, Xerxes isn't nearly as powerful as we all thought. He showed us all of his tanks and all of his airplanes and all of his weaponry, but he can't control his wife. And once word spreads, he's losing praise. His mission is threatened. He is now ticked off. What's, a, what's the second irony? Here's the second irony. The smartest man in the world doesn't have a clue what to do. Isn't that right? He doesn't know what to do. His wife says he doesn't know what to do. Should he have her executed? Should she? He doesn't know. So he convenes the Supreme Court, right? This is an issue of state. It's not just a personal offense. He convenes the smartest legal minds of the empire because he doesn't know what to do. The most powerful guy in the world can't control his wife, and the smartest guy in the world doesn't know what to do. You see what the author is doing? The author is making a joke out of Xerxes. Oh, yeah. And if you adopt a counterfeit competing mission that you live for, you'll be a joke too. Because the irony and the peripety of that is that the gospel and King Jesus wins. Isn't that part of what's going on? Well, there's one more irony, and we'll, we'll see more, more of this uh, next week. The third irony is Xerxes wants a trophy, submissive, good-looking, silent wife. He's got Vashti, though. He trades in Vashti, and, you know, all, all of you women could probably identify with this. Think about this. The Supreme Court comes back, and here's what they say. Here's the verdict. Vashti, you refuse to appear before the most powerful 
king in the universe. You refuse. So your sentence is, you can never appear before him again. And she probably said, seriously? Like, you're kidding, right? That's like my punishment? I've been living for this day, right? Um, he is then angry. He wants a trophy, silent, submissive, completely obedient, doormat kind of wife. He's got Vashti, though. Yeah, here's the irony. He trades in Vashti and gets Esther. He wants Barbie. He's got Vashti. He's getting a Green Beret. He's getting Rambo next week, right? <laughs> so he thinks he's getting a doll that's going to get what he wants. He gets a G.I. Joe that's going to call the shots, and she's going to control the narrative from here on out. How ironic is that in the story? Another peripety, right? So there you see the three moves. The most powerful man whose mission is power. The guy whose mission is praise, whose mission is possessions, and he's treating his wife as a possession. Those things are his mission. His mission is thwarted and denied by his wife. He is ballistic because of that. And he gets rid of all of that, and what he gets in return is not what he bargained for. Interesting. Well, let's ask a few questions as we, uh, as we end. I'm not going to leave it like that. A few questions. We need to uh, kind of pop the hood of our soul every once in a while and ask how we're doing. So we're going to use uh, Xerxes to figure this out a little bit. On a Thursday morning, I went to a lube through down here on, here on 309 to get my oil changed. Because the little sticker on my windshield said I should have gotten my oil changed a thousand miles ago. I'm cheap. I don't obey the sticker. The mechanics rip you off with that 3,000-mile thing, right? I'm going to wait till 4,000. Beside that, Kim's on my back. I don't change the oil, all right? So, so I drive to Lube Through. I drive in, and we kind of know the family that owns it. I don't get a discount. I wish I did. I don't get a discount, but I know the family. I pull in on the thing. He reaches in, takes the sticker. Do you want us to check your pressure and fluids? Sure, as long as I'm here, check everything. And in Lube Through, you stay in the car, right? So I'm sitting there talking to the guy. He no, he no sooner started typing things in the computer. Guy underneath, I hear stuff banging. He's working on it. I hear, oh, stop, guys, stop. What's the problem? You have another 1,000 miles before your oil change. I said, what? I said, no, no, no. The sticker says I'm 1,000 over. Yeah, that's because the stickers print automatically for 3,000. But your owner's manual and your car says you shouldn't change the oil except for every 5,000. Can you believe a mechanic's telling me this, right? I mean, I thought they'd change every 100 miles if you take it in. I said, really? He said, well, do you want us to change it anyway? I said, heck no. Give me my sticker back. So I got my sticker back. I put it back on the windshield. I said, I'm not paying you for it. No, 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 you're good. I pulled out. I got another 1,000 miles. I'm not going back for another couple of weeks, right? But here's what I was thinking driving back to church. When's the last time uh, I popped the hood of my soul? I kind of asked myself some hard questions about what's going on inside. Um, he had to tell me where the button was to pop my hood, too. Sorry. <laughs> Do you know where the button is to pop the hood of your car? When's the last time you checked the fluids and pressure of your heart? You know, it's good to kind of do that periodically with your car. It's absolutely essential that we do that regularly with our motives and what we're living for. So here are a few questions. Here's the first one. What is your competing counterfeit mission? Don't tell me you don't have one because you're in church. I know you do. 
And you may have many of them, but one of them usually rises to the top, right? Be honest. One of them kind of bubbles up to the top. How do you know what it is? It's the thing you're preoccupied with. When your mind doesn't have to go anywhere, where does it usually go? That's your counterfeit mission. Where did Xerxes' mind go usually? Power, the accumulation of possessions, and how to get the respect and praise of people. That's where his mind always went. Where does your mind go? What is your competing counterfeit mission? Until you name it, you stand no chance of changing it. you got to name it. My guess is it's going to be somehow related to power, possessions, or praise. It's going to be in that ballpark. God doesn't give us these examples for nothing. Remember Jesus' first temptations? It was about possessions, stones to bread, It was about power, angels will catch you. It was about praise, everyone will follow you. Those are kind of, that's the modern moral trifecta, right? Power, possessions, praise. Which one is your one? Now, we know you've got one. And even though you don't like to uh, parade it around, you got one, and so do I. Maybe we have a couple that compete. What would it be like if we all, next week, had to wear T-shirts with our real counterfeit mission put on the front of them, right? I don't care if it's 100 degrees. Most of you would have jackets and sweaters on next week, right? Because we'd be embarrassed by the things we're really living for. When's the last time you popped the hood of your soul? You kind of check the pressure and stress of your heart to ask, what are you valuing? What are you trusting? Where are you finding your identity? What are you living for? What's inside? You know what, Xerxes? What's yours? What's yours? You got one. Second question. Do you know that Jesus was also tempted by a counterfeit mission? In fact, it shows up regularly through his life. I already mentioned the temptations, right, in Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. And so what happens? Satan comes and says, Jesus, Jesus, you know what? I know you're here to serve God, you serve your father. I know, but you know what? If you would just satisfy your hunger by turning stones to bread, Jesus said, if you would do this, you could avoid a lot of pain. Jesus, if you would just worship me, I'll give you all the allegiance of the people. They're counterfeit missions, right? That's at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus is tempted to live for something other than what God's calling him to live for, just like you. How about when uh, he's telling Peter, hey, Peter, let me kind of spin out the rest of the story for you. It goes something like this. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be mistreated. I'm going to be executed. Peter says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, you better read the Bible. That's not in, in the plan. No, no, no. Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're going to ride right to the throne. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter's presenting the counterfeit mission. How about in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus is wrestling with the counterfeit mission, right? Am I going to drink this cup of God's wrath, drink the cup of suffering for sin that I didn't commit to the bottom, or am I going to throw the cup away, and since I didn't commit sin, I'll be fine? But he drinks the cup. Jesus is tempted by a counterfeit mission regularly, and so are we, and will we be? Well, that raises uh, one last question. Do you know the rest of the story? So Jesus was tempted by a competing counterfeit mission throughout his life. And here's the rest of the story. He said no to the counterfeit mission 
over and over and over and over again. It didn't come once. It came consistently over and over. Jesus said, no, no, no. I'm going to live for God's mission. I'm going to live for God's mission. You know, churches, organizations, all are tempted with a counterfeit competing mission, aren't they? So can I just tell you? A counterfeit competing mission for church is this. Let's have church for where my preferences are the top priority. Can I just tell you, folks? That's a counterfeit competing mission. We're not here for our own sake. We're here for the people that aren't here yet. We're here for the people that need the love of God, need the grace of God, and need to be shown that in tangible ways. That's why we're here. Not for our pleasure, not for our preferences, not for our benefit, for other people. That's why we're here. Don't accept the counterfeit mission. But Jesus said no to those things, and so right after that Garden of Gethsemane episode, Jesus was arrested, and there were a bunch of fake trials, and Jesus was declared guilty of crimes he never committed, and Jesus was nailed to a cross, and he was executed with all of our sin debt on his shoulders, and he paid for it in full. And the greatest irony and peripety in the history of the world was that first Easter morning when a change of direction happened and the executed Son of God walked out alive. But how about the rest of the story in Esther? How does this Xerxes, Vashti, Esther, how does, that, how does the rest of that story go? I'm glad you asked. We pick up with character number two next week. Let's stand and close in prayer. Father, we give you thanks for uh, accounts like this, as painful as they are. We confess that often as we read the Bible, we don't read ourselves into the story, but I hope we do that today. Because in some small way, we follow the example of Xerxes. We're tempted by counterfeit competing missions, and we adopt them. And we can tell we've got a counterfeit mission because we speak up for the wrong things and we speak against the wrong things. Lord, I pray that you would bring the irony and peripety of the gospel into our lives in greater ways. We're headed in one direction, living for a counterfeit mission, but a sudden, radical, continuous change of direction occurs where we give up the counterfeit missions we adopt Jesus' mission as ours. And now we set our sights on continuing what Jesus started. We pray in his name. Amen.